Well, again, good morning, everybody. We are finishing up chapter 13 of the Gospel of John this morning. We're, if you're new, we're in a series in the Gospel of John. And if you'd like to, you can turn there in your Bibles. We'll be starting in verse 31 of chapter 13. And last week we saw Jesus announced that one of the 12 would betray him. And he was troubled by that fact. He had, he had known this for a while. Maybe he had known this when he chose Judas even. Um, but perhaps the most troubling thing about Judas's betrayal was that Judas persisted in choosing darkness over light. And Jesus has mentioned several times that he is the light of the world. And although Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, he still extended the same patience, the same grace that he offered to the other disciples. He treated him like any other disciple. Judas was even given responsibility over the money bag. He, he was one of the 12. He enjoyed community and fellowship with the others and, and with Jesus. And yet at the end of the day, he still chooses to betray everyone really by continually dipping into that money bag and maybe stealing money seems like a small thing compared to turning Jesus over to the authorities, which leads to his death, but that's what sin does. It leads to death. Sin is a downward spiral, and we need to understand that, that little things lead to big things. And really, at the end of the day, sin is sin, and when we choose to sin, we choose darkness over light. And so Judas continually chooses darkness. He continues to choose to remain in unbelief. And we know that he had every opportunity to choose light, right? He walked and talked with Jesus himself. He was in the inner circle among those who were closest to Jesus. And one commentator says that Judas is, is actually a more disturbing figure than Pilate or Caiaphas, Caiaphas was the head ruler of the, the Jewish leaders. He's more disturbing than them because he saw the light, he understood it, but he chose darkness anyway. And so we shouldn't be surprised that this troubles Jesus. But Jesus is also troubled because Judas has actually just left to go and betray him, to go and do the betraying. Jesus' hour is truly here. And these events are bringing him closer and closer to suffering and to death. Judas leaves, and now Jesus begins his final teaching to the, to the 11 disciples. Um, scholars call this section of John his farewell discourse. And that's just a fancy way of saying he's saying goodbye. And so in the next few chapters, he's also preparing the disciples for what's coming. And again, I mentioned this last week, Jesus truly came to earth as a servant. He knows what's coming, and yet his focus is his disciples. His focus is preparing them for, for what's coming, for the shocking events that are about to unfold in less than 24 hours. And he's preparing them for when he leaves, preparing them to be his church, his body, to be light in the darkness. Remember, this chapter starts in verse, uh, with verse 1, chapter 13. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, 
when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. This is part of what Jesus came to do. He came to die for our sins, of course, to be the sacrifice for our sins and to rise again so we could walk in newness of life. But in accomplishing those things, he also came to establish the church, a community of faithful believers who, again, are light in this world, light in the darkness, who are sharing the good news with the world and are pointing to Jesus with their lives. And so we're, we're now in verse 31. Let me read it for you guys. It says, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So Jesus starts his farewell almost as though now he can say what he couldn't say before when Judas was there. In the last chapter, chapter 12, Jesus has also talked about being glorified. Verse 23, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And if you remember back to when we talked about that, he's talking about his death. And I really, really like how one commentator frames this, and I'm just going to sum summarize what the commentator says. Jesus doesn't just come out and say, now I'm going to die. He says something a lot more complicated here. But what he says is actually describing the bigger picture. And this is the illustration that the commentator uses. He says, when you're in the kitchen stirring flour and butter and sugar in a bowl, and your child asks you, what are you doing? You don't say, I'm stirring flour and sugar and butter in a bowl. You say, I'm making cookies, right? You tell your child what you're doing, the bigger picture, and you're not saying exactly what you're doing at that moment. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving the bigger context. He doesn't just say, I'm going to die. He says, I'm glorified, and the Father is glorified in me, and I'm about to be glorified. And that's a, that's a confusing couple of sentences. So let's start with a definition of glory. God's glory is the visible manifestation of who he is. I should have put that up there on the screen, but I didn't. Let me say that again. God's glory is the visible manifestation of who he is, his character. And one theologian says God's manifestation of who he is, sorry, God's glory is the revelation of his splendid activity. And in the Old Testament, the glory of God was seen in, as a bright light or as a cloud or as a burning bush when Moses encountered God. In the New Testament, Jesus is the glory of God. He is the visible manifestation of who God is. And when we see Jesus, we understand who God is. So how does Jesus glorify the Father? By doing the Father's will, of course, but also he does it by being himself. He is God incarnate. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He demonstrates who God is because he is God. And a few weeks ago, we saw in John chapter 12, when Jesus prayed aloud to the Father, the Father audibly answers and everybody hears. It says, let me see if I can get it there. 
Verse 27, but for this purpose I have come to this hour, this is Jesus speaking, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Remember, Jesus' reason for coming to earth was to do the Father's will and to glorify the Father by doing his will. And the Father's name has been glorified through Jesus' ministry and is about to be glorified through Jesus' death and resurrection. Glorified because who he is will be clearly shown to the world. In our passage today, when Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, he's saying that each step closer to his sacrifice, to his death, brings him closer to glory. And for clarity, I think, I think we should look at another version of this text. I like the NLT. It's not really a translation. It's more of a paraphrase. But it says, that, this is the same passage, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. So Judas leaving to turn Jesus over to the authorities is bringing Jesus closer to his glory. Let's continue with the, with the NLT. It says, and God will be glorified because of him. Glory for God the Son is glory for God the Father. And Jesus has nearly completed the Father's will for him on earth. Verse 32 in the NLT says, And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Again, who God is will be fully revealed in Jesus' death. Jesus' glory is revealed in his death because God's love, righteousness, and plan of the Father to send the Son are made crystal clear. This is the first time that Jesus mentions himself being glorified. He has spoken of the Father, God the Father, being glorified, and he has said that he himself will be lifted up. But now he puts the two together, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, his, his return to the Father, will bring glory both to the, to the Son and to the Father. We also see later in one of Jesus' last prayers on earth, in John 17, he says, he prays, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus not only accomplished the work that the Father sent him to do, but he also leaves an example for us of how we, as his followers, glorify God. We glorify him by faithfully doing what he calls us to do. And each of us has our own vocation, our own place in this world. But as followers of Jesus, we all have the same call. And that's the work that Jesus has given us to do. It's the same call to go and make disciples. In the next verse, verse 33, Jesus is about to drop a big bomb on the disciples. And so he starts off with a term of affection. He says, little children, or my little children. And this was not an uncommon term. Um, Jesus is not trying to belittle his disciples. This was a term that sometimes was used by rabbis to their followers. And so, again, it's not uncommon. And, and John actually uses this term 
several times later in his letters to the church in 1 John. But what is this bomb that Jesus is going to drop? Let me read this verse. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as, the Jew, just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So can we imagine what the disciples are thinking after Jesus says this? Everything they've known for the last three years is about to be uprooted. They've left their homes, they've left their jobs, possibly left their families to follow Jesus. He called them to leave everything behind, and they did. And now he's, he's here after their last supper together, and he says he's going to leave them, and they can't come. Can you imagine the confusion and the thoughts swirling in their head? They're so shocked, they probably don't even hear what Jesus says next. In verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Peter's basically saying, whoa, 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 slow down a minute. You're leaving us? He, does, he doesn't even hear what Jesus just said. Peter is often a spokesman for the disciples. And I'm sure they're all thinking the same thing. In fact, we know they are because Thomas also speaks up in the next chapter, chapter 14. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that next Sunday. But again, we need to remember here, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what's coming. And so I want to back up a little bit to verse 33, when Jesus says, Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. There's a big difference here between what Jesus says, has said to the Jews, his opponents, and what he now says to his disciples. And I want to take a look at what Jesus is referring to. When he said, just as I said to the Jews, we can look back to John chapter 7, verse 35. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? And then a similar discussion happens in chapter 8, starting in verse 21, Jesus says, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So in both of these instances, it seems, actually in all of these instances, it seems like Jesus is talking about going to heaven. And with, with the Jews, with his opponents, he is. He says, I'm going to the one who sent me, to the Father. But when he tells this to the disciples in our passage today, in chapter 13, there's, there's actually a lot more here. He's talking about, again, remember, he's talking about the bigger picture. 
He's talking about the cookies. <laughs> um, he's talking about his death. He's talking about his departure, which includes his death. And so he says in verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come. And then when he answers Peter in verse 36, he says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Jesus is going to the cross and, and the disciples cannot follow him there. He must do this on his own. And he's about to leave this world. He's about to die. The disciples cannot follow him there either right now, but they will follow him eventually. And this is the big difference between what he says to the Jews, to his opponents, and what he says to his disciples. The Jewish leaders and the other opponents of Jesus won't be able to follow him to be with the Father because just as Jesus told them, unless you believe that I am he, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, the Christ, you will die in your sins. The disciples do believe. They will experience the cleansing that comes from the cross. They will experience the new life that Jesus will give them. They will be filled with the Holy Spirit when Jesus leaves. And yet his opponents will experience none of this because they will reject him. And so instead of surrendering to Jesus and dying to their sins and becoming new creations, Jesus' opponents will die in their sins and they will be lost. That is the difference. The disciples will be able to follow Jesus when the time comes for him to be, when the time comes for them to be with him in heaven. As is the trend, and the disciples don't understand this, and, and they're upset. And in the next verse, Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Talk about a punch in the gut, right? And I'm sure that Jesus didn't mean it that way, but I'm equally sure that Peter took it that way. We don't hear from Peter again in John until five chapters later. So he, he's embarrassed. He, he's, he's quiet. And what a shock this must have been to him. And to the other disciples as well, what, what are they thinking? Jesus says this in front of everyone, and they didn't yet know that Judas was the one that was going to betray him. So do the disciples start to question if maybe Peter was the one that Jesus was referring to when he said that one of them would betray him? At any rate, Peter must have been very, very embarrassed. As we've seen with Peter before, he wears his heart on his sleeve, right? And he doesn't seem to have a filter. He just say it, says what's on his mind. Remember, he was a fisherman. He was rash. He was a, he was a little rough around the edges. Peter believed that when it came down to it, he would be willing to sacrifice himself for Jesus. And, and that's partly true. He, he was willing to fight the guards when, when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden. I mean, he cuts off a guy's ear, right? But... Later, when he's separated from Jesus um, and, and he sees that he may be in the same danger that Jesus is in, fear overwhelms him. 
Peter didn't know himself as well as Jesus knew him. And he certainly didn't understand what Jesus meant when Jesus tells him that there may be, uh, that there is actually satanic power moving against him. John actually leaves this out of this, out of his account, but Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22, starting verse, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter loves Jesus, but he's about to have a moment of weakness. Jesus knows that Peter loves him, but sometimes Peter just needs to be quiet and listen to what Jesus is saying. Again, Jesus is trying to prepare them for what's coming. One of the things that he said was meant to prepare them, but Peter and probably the rest of the, the disciples are too focused on Jesus saying that he's about to leave. They're too focused to catch what he's just said in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And we talked about this verse a few months ago when we did a, sh a short series on some of the one another commands in the New Testament. And these commands are meant for the church, the body of Christ. They instruct us and they guide us into a right way of living, a Christ-like way of living. Here in John 13, Jesus has just told his disciples to humbly serve one another. And he demonstrates this by washing their feet. And now he says to love one another just as I have loved you. And again, we talked about this a few months ago, so I'll just summarize. The reason this is a new command is because Jesus is telling them to love one another, not as they love themselves or, or as they love their neighbor. That's a different command. That's a more broad command to love everyone around you. This is a new command that's meant to be for followers of Jesus. Love one another, love other believers as I have loved you. This, this kind of sounds strange, right? Until we realize that we're not to love our neighbors less. We're not to love the world less. We're just to love our fellow believer in a greater way. As Jesus says, as I have loved you. And why, and why do we do this? Verse 35 tells us, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the distinguishing quality of a follower of Jesus. As Jesus embodied God's love, so too we as his followers are to love, are, are to have that same kind of love for one another. And, and this is part of how Jesus is glorified. Jesus is glorified by the Father, but he's also glorified by us. We are visible manifestations of who God is when we live as his people, when we demonstrate who God is. And I think there's several reasons that Jesus gives this command. 
And this is kind of an add-on to that previous sermon um, that I preached a few months ago. We didn't, <clears throat> excuse me, we didn't talk about some of these things that I'm about to mention. So first, as I just mentioned, Jesus gives this command because this will be a, a defining characteristic of his followers. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, he says, if you have love for one another. And this is exactly why the enemy tries to divide us, divide the church. And, and some of us cringe when we read that verse, verse 35, because we've seen the opposite of that. We've seen bickering and fighting amongst the church. Can you imagine a church splitting over the color of a carpet? It's so petty, and yet we, when we realize that the goal of the enemy is to destroy us, we sort of understand why these things happen. But in understanding this, we need to guard ourselves. We need to do our best to love one another, to go to each other when there's an issue so that it doesn't turn into bitterness and resentment. And that's where we, that's where we give the enemy a foothold, right? Because he loves to divide. Remember, his goal is to destroy Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25, says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each, of, each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we, are members of, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And then skipping down a few verses, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in verses 35 and 30, 34 and 35 of our passage in John. We are to be people that are known by their love for each other. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says. If you're married, you know how difficult this can be because as we get closer to an imperfect person, problems arise, right? There's sometimes friction. There's sometimes tension. Sometimes we rub each other the wrong way. That's inevitable as we get closer, but we're not to avoid tension or conflict, we're to work through it, we're to pursue forgiveness, as Paul says, as God in Christ forgave you. And so again, the enemy's tactic is to divide us, because if he can do that, and the world sees that, then they have no reason to believe that following Jesus is a better way than not following him, than denying him. In Korea, there's, a, there's an expression, if you want to fight, go to church. And I'm not trying to put down the Korean church. Unfortunately, this is a worldwide issue. Um, but I do want to show that the world takes notice. If we are not known for love and for forgiveness, but instead bitterness and fighting, then we've lost our witness, right? We are no longer ambassadors for Christ. And I'm not saying there won't be problems. There will be. 
That's the, that's the point I'm trying to make. But one of the characteristics of a follower of Jesus has to be forgiveness, that we work it out, that we really are people of forgiveness, working out what God is working in us, right? As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. How do we display Jesus' love? We display it, as Paul says here in Philippians 2, by working out what he's working in us, by following Jesus, by obeying his commands. And that's another reason that Jesus commands us to love one another. We glorify God by living for him. We are little manifestations displaying who God is when we are surrendered to him and living out his commands in obedience to him, loving one another as he has loved us. Jesus' love is displayed in doing the Father's will, in his obedience to the Father. And so our love is also expressed in doing God's will through obedience. And, and maybe that sounds too forced, right? I love my brother and sister in Christ because I'm commanded to. But there's a key to this in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 8. John says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest in us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation just means to take away our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So verse 8 sums it all up here. Anyone who knows God, sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Unless we know God, not just know about him, but truly know him, unless we are in fellowship with him, we don't know what love really is because God is the one who teaches us what it is. God is the one who teaches us how to love. As we're working out what he's working in us, we're learning how to love, right? The Father sent the Son because God loves us. And verse 11 says, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It is up there in 1 John. Once we start to understand the love of God, how sacrificial it is, how humble it is, how unselfish it is, once we start to understand his love for us, we can't help but be full of thanksgiving and start to show that same kind of love ourselves. One commentator says, our union with his divine work brings about our salvation. And then this commentator points to John 6, 53, where Jesus says, unless you drink my blood and, drink my, and eat my flesh, you cannot have eternal life. And that's really graphic, but Jesus is talking about union with him, about believing him and making him the center of our lives. And, and 
being obedient um, to what he asks us to do. So you see, it, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that if we pray a prayer asking Jesus into our hearts, that we will be saved. Actually, the closest scripture to that is Romans 10, verse 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the thing about this verse, though, is that it's not a one-time confession. And I think that gets misunderstood sometimes in Christian circles, that if I say a prayer asking Jesus into my heart, that's all I need to do. I can go back to doing whatever I was doing before as long as I've said that prayer. But if we confess that Jesus is Lord, if we make him our Lord, that means we're living our lives for him, right? We're actually looking to him to be led, looking to him, uh, looking to what he commands us to do. If we're living in that way, then our lives will be different. We will be made new. Not because of what we do, but because we are no longer our own master. We have surrendered that title to our Lord, Jesus. The commentator that I quoted says, our union with his divine work brings about our salvation. But I think maybe a better way of saying that is that our union with Jesus brings about our salvation. We learn to love when we begin to know Jesus. And just to clarify, I'm not dissing, inviting Jesus into your heart, into your life. It's crucial that we make a decision to follow him. What I'm saying, though, is that that's not a card that we use to get into heaven. I've prayed this prayer, and so now I'm going to heaven. Remember, in the end, Jesus will say to many people, I never knew you. One more reason that Jesus gives us this new command to love one another as he has loved us is that the disciples are going to need each other. And, and this brings us back to, our, to the context of our passage today. The disciples are very much going to need to put this command into practice. Jesus will be taken from them, and they will be confused. They will be terrified and afraid. Again, Jesus is preparing his disciples in this farewell teaching, his farewell discourse to them. And love is such a big part of these last words to Jesus. Love is only mentioned 12 times in John chapters 1 through 12, but in chapters 13 to 21, love is used 44 times. And, and love will take on an even deeper meaning when Jesus dies for them and for us on the cross. And also when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and empowers them and gives them a new boldness and a greater capacity to love. The next three days, <clears throat> excuse me, the next three days are going to be some of the most challenging days of their lives. Jesus will die, and for three days they will be in hiding, and they will be afraid. They will be questioning, was, was he really who he said he was? And, and they'll be wondering what to do next. Should they go back to their old jobs? They're going to need to be there for each other. And then when Jesus rises and comes back to them, it will bring reassurance that he was who he said he was. That it wasn't all a waste, but he'll have completed his work and it will be time to go back to the Father. What will the disciples do then? 
they'll, again, they'll need to put this command into practice and love and care for one another as Christ has for them. And we here at PIBC are also to love one another as Christ has loved us. The community of believers, the church, should be a place where we find, um, where we find refuge from the world, right? A world that God loves and wants to redeem, but for the most part, hates light. God wants to love the world. He wants us to love the world in that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we are to carry on the work of Jesus' love for the world. But that's not easy. It's tiring work. It's sometimes depressing. We sometimes feel beat down and, and defeated. So again, we need each other. Where else can we find encouragement, support, and love apart from the church? At least that's where we should find those things. Unfortunately, that's not always a reality. But I pray that it is a reality for us. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come and we can learn the same things that you taught the first disciples. Help us to truly understand, <clears throat> help us to truly understand and live out these things, Lord. We want to be people who are known for love because you first loved us. We have experienced and know that love because we know you. And again, we thank you and we pray all of this in your name. Amen.